G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We are on a journey through the primeval history, and specifically, we are in Genesis 4 and the story of Cain and Abel. And I like this part of the story, Tim, because we are getting to the bit where God bit of a convo with Cain about Abel's death. Yeah, it is an interesting conversation, isn't it? I don't know, convo. Do, do Americans say convo? I don't think they do. Okay, do well, some, like we servo we... and, you know, <laughs> that sort of stuff. I, I like it, though. I think we, we've got to keep that uh, character in the in the show. Okay. Yeah. Right. Good. Get an Aussie flavour. Yes, like we do it. like to uh, shorten uh, any uh, multiple syllable word and whack an O on the end of it. Um, but yes, this convo is uh, is pretty unusual. It's kind of uh, mysterious, and there's some pretty uh, strange sayings here. Yes, yes, they are indeed very strange sayings. It's a very unusual conversation. Uh, today we're just going to look at verse nine. Uh, so I'll read it now from the ESV. Then the Lord said to Cain. Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So this is interesting because we have another situation where there appears to be a direct conversation between Cain and the Lord. So there's some reason to ask whether the Lord appeared to Cain in some kind of pre-incarnate form or this conversation took place by other means. It seems apparent that there is a conversation going on, unlike the situation that we saw with the acceptance of the offerings, which was something where you just had to wait and see what would happen to find out if your offering was accepted. Mm, so Cain talked to God face to face then? Well, it's possible, but taking the story seriously doesn't mean that we need to understand it necessarily at face value. We have to remember that what we get in the story is the way that the author wants to present it to us. and What actually happened may be a different thing. And it's possible that if we had video footage of whatever was going on with Cain, we might have seen something different. Maybe God was standing there talking to him, or maybe Cain was having some kind of visionary experience or whatever. All we really know is that the author intends to tell us that there was an exchange between Cain and the Lord, which should be understood in terms of a brief conversation for narrative purposes, or a, a convo, as we like to say. We need to remember that these are stories that are told to be listened to in a public setting, to be taken away and talked about and to teach people by means of meditation and reflection on the story. The value of the stories isn't necessarily seen in a face value reading, but in the reflections that come about as a result of study. So while it is possible that the Lord appeared in a tangible form to speak with Cain personally, the story doesn't require it on a scientific level. And as I read the question that God asked Cain, it reminds me of where God spoke to the man in the Garden of Eden and asked, where are you? Yeah, that's right. It has a lot of that kind of flavor, doesn't it? We've noticed other connections back to Genesis 3 in the way that God spoke to the woman compared to the way that God spoke to Cain. We saw that contrast between desire and rule. And we also found in the course of our study that the direction of that desire is toward the other person, not against them, in both cases. These are some pretty strong indicators that the stories are meant to be read together as part of the same body of literature. And that's why I argue that these are not separate stories, but the Cain and Abel story is a development and continuation of the story that began in Genesis 2. So I suppose it really goes without saying that when God asked this question, where is your brother Abel, 
It's not because he doesn't know the answer. God knows everything, right? So he definitely knows the answer. That's true. But I wonder if God is perhaps testing Cain to see what he understands of the nature of Abel's existence. Has Cain's problem been solved now that Abel has died? Or is Abel now in a place inaccessible to the hands of his murderous brother? Let's talk a bit more about Abel. For those who came in late, I have talked before about the meaning of the name of Abel, but I didn't give you the full picture all at once because this is a highly nuanced name with different facets to its meaning, and I wanted to reserve some of the mystery around the identity of Abel until a good time to talk about it, and that time has come. In Hebrew, the name is actually pronounced as Hevel. This is the same word used by the writer of Ecclesiastes, which is usually translated as something like vanity or meaningless. Why did you say that there was some kind of mystery around Abel's identity? I didn't think it was uh, particularly mysterious. Yeah, well, you find as you read the book of Ecclesiastes, which features this word some 40-odd times, there are many situations in which it's used to describe something that doesn't quite make sense, something that's hard to grasp or understand. I'll give you some examples. These all come from the book of Ecclesiastes, and they're examples in which the word vanity here really fails to capture the idea that there's some kind of unfathomable mystery that the author is pondering. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 15 says, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. And in chapter 3, verse 19, what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. And Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Chapter 6, verse 12, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Chapter 7, verse 15, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Chapter 8, verse 14, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. All right, so you get the sense after reading some of these that the author is really saying that despite his great wisdom, he just has no answer for why these things happen the way that they do and why God works the way that he does. These things are a mystery, hidden in the mind of God. We don't know why the wicked prosper. We don't know why people do the things they do. We don't know why the righteous often suffer. We don't know why God lets these things go the way they do. When we talked before about the meaning of Abel's name, I mentioned that on a face value level, his name means something like breath or vapor. And at the time, we talked about the fleeting nature of those things and how the breath represents something like perhaps a spoken word. On a deeper level, what we can derive from the notion of breath or vapor is the idea of something that cannot be grasped. You can't hold smoke in your hand. Or as the writer of Ecclesiastes likes to say, it's like chasing after the wind. You're never going to catch it. Just when you think uh, you've caught all the Pokemon, they make up some more. 
This too is vanity. That's very deep. And that's why I think that an important part of Abel in this story is seeing this mysterious aspect that we find in his name. There's something about him that we just can't quite apprehend. So when God says to Cain, where is your brother Abel? We should see that Abel has now become intangible and untouchable. And we may yet see traces of his existence, but he will remain beyond our reach and beyond our understanding. He's become like God now in the sense that he joins the ranks of the Elohim. Just to disambiguate a little here in case that rocked your world a little bit. The, the term Elohim is not a name reserved for God. It is a Hebrew term which designates sentient beings that inhabit the spiritual realm, if I can put it in clunky English terms. In other words, the Elohim are non-embodied beings, and there are half a dozen different kinds of Elohim mentioned in the Bible. You can find Yahweh, the unique, most high God of the Bible, referred to as Elohim. That same term is also used of lesser gods and angels and other kinds of spiritual entities. It's a technical term, not a name. But the most interesting use of it, and the one I'm applying to here, is the situation where it's applied to the spirits of the disembodied dead. Yeah, we talked about that before, didn't we, way back in uh, our first season? Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that the word Elohim is in use with regard to Abel in this passage, but I am suggesting that his name implies this intangible nature, which is usually reserved for non-embodied spirits. And now that Abel has been killed, and yet God is still asking Cain where he is, we're getting our first hint in the biblical narrative that life does not stop at the death of the body. This will be important later as we continue into Genesis 6 and the way that particular narrative is interpreted by the writer of 1st Enoch. Of course, it's essential for a biblical worldview centred on a resurrected Messiah. We're going to talk more about this layer of meaning in Abel's name as we continue the Cain and Abel story, but for now, it seems to be lost on Cain, who is more interested in forgetting about the responsibility that he had to his younger brother. It's ironic, then, that Cain's response to God seems to reflect that mystery. He doesn't know. But this isn't some kind of profound statement from Cain or some kind of philosophical musing, because what he means isn't, I don't know, but really, I don't care. We can see that in the question that he uses as a retort toward God when he says, am I my brother's keeper? What we don't see, with our eyes at least, is that there is an intentional play on words here which we're only able to acknowledge if we're familiar with the text as it is read aloud. And if we know the book of Deuteronomy, there are different ways to express the idea of a firstborn son being responsible for the care of his brother. But only one way to say it in such a way that it recalls the words of Moses to the ears of the listener. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. I think we've talked before on the podcast about the notion of hearing and the Hebrew term shama, which is translated as to hear or to listen, but also carries the notion of obedience. You don't just hear, you have to do it as well. You don't just hear the law, you have to keep it. The word translated as keeper in Genesis 4 has a similar sound. It's shamar. Both words have this idea of keeping or preserving by means of being obedient and loyal. And it's to God and to the word that this obedience and loyalty is owed. In fact, the very same word that we have in Genesis 4 appears in Deuteronomy 5.1, that bit at the end where it says, be careful to do them. That's shamar, to keep these words. So there is a double emphasis 
on the keeping of the word, which is not only reflected in the hearing, but stressed in the doing as well. Abel represents the word, and we've discussed this already. Cain is required to keep the word by preserving the life of his brother. In doing that, he would be upholding the expectation of family and community life in the ancient Near East. The firstborn is definitely responsible for his brother. But you can see now how all Israel is represented in Cain, who was charged with keeping the word that had been entrusted to him, with keeping his brother. Cain is the one who was supposed to be the representation of God, and the way that you represent God is by keeping his word. That's where the first man failed. Cain was supposed to do better. We all hope that our children will do better than ourselves, but the reality is that we just don't learn. And we will continue to make the same mistakes, generation after generation, because it's in our nature. At the end of the day, we all think we're different, that we're special, we're not like those other guys, and we know that if we could just reach that one thing we need, if we could just grasp it, if we could just take hold of that intangible something that's missing in our lives, we'd have it all together. But Cain, for all his greed and all his desperation, and it's in his name and his nature to acquire, he can't keep the word. He's grasping for smoke, chasing the wind, and his clenched fist is just an empty handful of itself. Abel is gone like a vapour like a breath in the morning air, like smoke rises to heaven, he has become inaccessible to Cain. Now, Cain faces God with nothing but empty rhetoric. Where is the God that demanded Abel's blood? What happened to the God that Cain hoped would bless his land with the rain he so desperately needed? Cain's disloyalty to Yahweh hasn't got him anywhere, and now he stands alone before his creator with bloody hands and nowhere to hide. The divine being that Cain thought would bail him out is not mentioned or even alluded to here. That's just the stark reality of his absence. So Cain tried to make a deal with the devil and the devil broke the deal. Yeah, it sounds like it, mate. And we're going to see the contrast in God's faithfulness towards Cain as we progress through this story. You know what? There are more layers to this story too. I'm just going to tease a bit with this. What if Cain represents the nations? Think Amorite nations and, and Babylon in particular, who were at enmity with Israel, the younger brother. What if the older brother in the story was representative of certain divine beings who failed in their responsibility to take care of humans? That's interesting. But that's for another episode of the podcast. For now, we need to remember that this is God's word, his revelation of himself toward us, and that means it's not about the bad guys. It would be all too easy to focus on finding evil powers and the horrible things that bad people do, but that's not our goal. This story is teaching a lesson intended for its first audience and applicable to us if we can grasp it correctly. It sounds like it's saying that if we want to be represented as a god, like Cain was supposed to be, then we need to give the word of God by loving our brother. That's exactly right, brother. Let's wrap it up there. We'll continue next week with God's response to Cain. Have you got any questions this week? We certainly do. Let's do that thing where our listeners send in their lovely giant questions and you dig up the answers to said questions. Sounds good. What do you got for me, Chris? I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us in the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your 
enjoying questions. All right, well, let's try this one. This question came to us from the Divine Council Worldview Discussion Group on Facebook. Tim asked, if demons are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, what percentage angelic are they? 50% human and 50% angelic? And what then uh, for the descendants? Uh, a Nephilim gets with a human and has offspring 75% human and 25% angelic. When they died, did they become demons too? And what are the third generation and so on? At what point did they stop having enough fallen angel in them to be fit for Sheol and possible redemption? Mm, that's a good question there from Tim. And the discussion continued on that one with a follow-up question, which came from Stephen. Yeah, Stephen said, it is an interesting point. At what point did the DNA degrade far enough that they no longer exhibited the Nephilim traits? Or is that what we see with some of the people in our current population? A recessive gene that shows up occasionally and we see someone who is seven foot six. I would love your insight on this. And then Ben asked, why is Gilgamesh referred to as two-thirds divine? Hmm. All right. Well, it is an interesting line of inquiry. I guess I want to start by talking about how we use numbers. We tend toward a mathematical approach to numbers in that we see numbers as a reasonably precise way to communicate quantities and calculations. Whether it be whole numbers, percentages or fractions, as we have in these listeners' questions, our general intent in a line of inquiry like this is to get some sense of proportion using numbers to get us a reasonably accurate estimate, if not a precise calculation, or even a formula we can apply as a principle. So you look at a situation like what we have presented in the Epic of Gilgamesh and we have what looks like material we can extrapolate a formula from. These are three different translations from different versions of the Epic. I'm just reading little snippets here. Offspring of Lugalbanda, Gilgamesh is strong to perfection, son of the august cow, Rimat Ninsun. Gilgamesh is awesome to perfection. Two-thirds of him is God, one third of him is human. The great goddess Aruru designed the model for his body. Here's another one. When the gods created Gilgamesh, they gave him a perfect body. Shamash, the glorious sun, endowed him with beauty. Adad, the god of the storm, endowed him with courage. The great gods made his beauty perfect, surpassing all others, terrifying like a great wild bull. Two-thirds they made him god and one-third man. And a third one here, surpassing all kings, powerful and tall beyond all others, violent, splendid, a wild bull of a man, unvanquished leader, hero in the front lines, beloved by his soldiers, fortress they called him, protector of the people, raging flood that destroys all defences, two-thirds divine and one-third human, son of King Lugalbanda who became a god and of the goddess Ninsun. All right, so those are just little bits uh, from various translations of the Epic of Gilgamesh. And armed with this information, I've seen various attempts at working this out based on percentages of divinity. Okay, so option one, goddess plus divinized king. That would be 100% divine plus 50% divine, which equals 75% divine, or close enough for ancient Mesopotamians can't count, can they? So... Two-thirds, three-quarters, whatever. Um, option two, goddess plus king plus a god working through the king, which would be 100% divine times two plus 0% times 
times one, which equals two thirds divine, which is good maths if you're dividing by three, but it's terrible biology. Uh, option three, king plus prostitute plus goddess. So two humans, one god, that's one third divine. So that's not only backwards, but ignorant of the text. Um, option four, this is another one that I've seen, divinized king plus prostitute plus goddess, or 50% plus 0% plus 100%. Equals 50% in the three-way split, 75% if you don't include the prostitute. Either way, the figures don't give two-thirds, and we still don't have a third party in the text. Ugh. Sorry, I got distracted. I totally lost where we are. <laughs> <laughs> Too many numbers. I'm not good at maths. This is really confusing. It reminds me of someone asking how many angels can, can dance on the head of a pin. Yeah, that's why I think we need to stop doing mathematics on this. Uh, the only way to get a correct calculation is to ignore the affirmations of the text. The Bible makes no such claim in terms of proportional divinity. While it clearly prohibits any kind of admixture with the divine, the overwhelming consensus would appear to show that in the eyes of God and Jewish authors across the board, any kind of divine mixture was considered a bastardization and total corruption of the individual concerned. Any notion of considering such offspring as divine or semi-divine is shot down in flames. The Enochic literature refers to them as bastards and reprobates. Their departed spirits are called unclean spirits, and that terminology continues through the Second Temple period into New Testament usage to describe demons. But even in the Septuagint, where these offspring are referred to as giants or gigantes in the Greek, there's no attempt to preserve some kind of semi-divine nature. There's nothing positive said about them. They're part man, part God, and all bad. What does that remind me of Robocop? Um, so even the Greeks didn't like the giants then? No. We might consider that the Hebrew text preserves divinity in the Anakim giant clans if you go by the logic that the Karam, often translated as to utterly destroy, is a kind of destruction of divine things, which is how some people read it, but the Rationale behind Karam is primarily the restoration of sacred space and the protection of humanity by removing what was forbidden. And that was done by destroying the people in question on the basis of their corruption or driving them out. I might just point out as well that we're not talking about moral corruption here. The Canaanites were not subject to Israelite law. So they weren't lawbreakers. Um, that's not the same thing as the Kerem, which was primarily a devotion of sacred or holy things that would be given to God as a means of destroying things devoted to other gods. You need to pick up the difference in the two words, which derive from the same Hebrew root, but have different pronunciation and different applications. So they're not the same word, but they, they do get translated the same sometimes, don't they? Because there seem to be some scholars that uh, get this messed up too. Yeah, that's right. If anyone wants to know why I don't recommend John Walton's book, The Lost World of the Israelite Conquest, this is one of the reasons why. On the one hand, you have Param, which is the exile or killing of the living to remove them from sacred space, protect humanity and restore creation order. And on the other hand, you have Karem, which is the devotion of sacred items, and these are always non-living, to destruction. Walton doesn't seem to be able to disambiguate between the two terms and instead tries to find a meaning that satisfies both applications. It doesn't work. We touched on this recently when we were talking about giving offerings to God. The way you give something to God is to make it unfit for human use. So you burn it in most cases until it's no good for anything from a human perspective. 
and that was considered then given to God and no longer redeemable for human purposes. And that could be done either to protect humanity from the detrimental effect of using that thing or to give something that is considered holy permanently to God. I talk about this in some detail in my book, just in case you wanted to read more about it. And I show how consistently Scripture uses these two terms separately in the way that I've just described. So that little disambiguation is handy because it means that the application of Haram to the giant clans is not an acknowledgement of any alleged divinity of these people, but it does illustrate that they pollute and corrupt sacred space instead of belonging in it. Basically what we're seeing is rather than the human and the divine resulting in something better than humanity, it results in something worse. They don't retain divinity, they corrupt it. And that corruption is complete and thorough. There's no separating it out or coming back to good from there. So that's the end of trying to work it out mathematically. Basically, if there was any mixture of the human and the divine, that was considered unfit for sacred space and to be driven out or destroyed. And there's no mandate to go out and hunt down the diaspora of the giant clans and exterminate them off the face of the earth. God's basically like, as long as they're not on my turf, I'm not really worried. This is something I didn't touch on in my book because I wanted to remain focused on biblical material and the worldview centered around that. But if you think about what we've been saying on this podcast for some time now about genetic ancestry versus genealogical ancestry and the issue of dwindling proportions of DNA coming from particular ancestors as you move forward in time, I've spoken several times about the fact that once you move about 10 generations, there's no longer any traceable DNA derived from people that far back. It just gets lost in the human genome like a drop of water in the ocean. So now you know that I don't like the idea of trying to find science in the Bible because it's obvious that ancient people simply didn't have a scientific mindset. And whatever God said to them in scientific terms would have been lost on them. And to be honest, God's scientific knowledge is probably lost on us too, so we would be in that same boat. I've said a million times that the Bible is not a science book. But doesn't God actually say something about the 10th generation from an unclean mixture in the Bible? Where have I seen something like that before? Oh, yeah, you might be thinking of this. Uh, Deuteronomy 23, verse 2. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. And right off the bat, I want to acknowledge the fact that there are stated reasons why this prohibition is in place and it doesn't say that it's because of genetics or something. And those are perfectly legitimate reasons on moral grounds. God does not need to come out and say to the people that there's a scientific reason for the prohibition as well as the stated reasons that he gives. The people don't really need a scientific reason and they wouldn't understand it if you gave it to them because they don't have a scientific framework for interpreting that prohibition. I just think that it's an interesting coincidence given what we now understand. And you might object and say that the Ammonites and Moabites drove out the giant clans as stated in Deuteronomy 2. But where did they go when they were driven out of Canaan? Also, we have to consider that the stated prohibition begins in very broad, general terms and then becomes more specific as it talks about particular tribes and nations. You could understand this as the prohibition on these particular nations being on moral grounds, but in the broader context of forbidden unions, there's no stated rationale. Now, going by that interpretation, the first verse we read, which is verse 2, stands separate to verse 3 and onward. In that case, there's no stated reason 
for prohibiting the product of forbidden unions, but there are reasons for not allowing the Moabites and Ammonites, as shown in verse 4. So you look at something like the situation we have with Ruth, who was from Moab and appears in the genealogies of both David and Jesus. The big controversy there was her nationality, not her species. And that's despite the fact that her husband, Boaz, is called a Yibor, which is a term used to describe the Nephilim and Nimrod as well. But anyway, that reading of Deuteronomy 23 isn't a problem, unlike the other view, which would suggest that there was some kind of hybridization which would delegitimize King David. We don't want that. Anyway, this is just speculative, but I do find it interesting, as I said, because it aligns with both the ritual purity law, the encouragement of scripture to maintain brotherly love between tribes, and the genetic evidence we have today that suggests that the human genome corrects basically back to factory settings, if you like, after roughly 10 generations. But all of this is actually quite unnecessary when we recognize that God sovereignly intervened to prevent the continuation of the giant clans. We haven't got time to go into that here, but if you want to read up on it, I would suggest that you get yourself a copy of my book, Answers to Giant Questions, and you'll see how that's addressed in Ezekiel chapter 31. And we're going to leave it there because we're running out of time. As usual, we'll be back next week to continue our study of Genesis 4 and to answer more of your giant questions. Well, this has been uh, super interesting as always, and I'm really looking forward to next week. What will we be talking about then? The mouth of the earth. Sounds weird, uh, and weird is interesting, and that makes it good as well. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Don't nobody go nowhere. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, GravesForsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon. Paperback and Google. Check out the other podcasts at RavenCreekSC.com, GiantAnswers.com, Read the blog and have us on socials, don't forget to subscribe to the friends of the show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Yeah, I couldn't believe uh, no trick-or-treaters, you know. I live across the road from a school. So you would have thought there'd be kids everywhere. Um, but yeah, it's a Christian school and uh, they're all Protestants. So uh, no trick-or-treating. Excellent. That's yeah. the way it should be. Yep. Stayed at home. Watched the movie. Did not get up to answer the door. Did not smile. Did not dispense treats. But humbug.
the only treats were dispatched inside your house. Yes. But well behaved. My daughter made popcorn. That's right. And adoring wife. Yes. All yes. Right. So uh, a good time was had by all, uh, except for the people outside. <laughs> well, it's it's part of the festive season for us, isn't it? Australia, yeah. You know, the Melbourne Cup. Uh, just sort of lets you know that you're you're in that festive season now until. Yeah. January. <laughs> True. Yeah. Not quite warm enough yet to feel festive. Like it's got to be properly hot, and you know we just we're still getting those frightfully cold spring mornings. You bring your jacket and then you take it off at eight o'clock. Okay. You do that thing at this time of the year. You bring your jacket just so that you can wear it every time you walk in the shade. <sighs> All right. Still connected. I am still connected. Excellent. All right. Um, okay. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. We used to fluff a lot more in the early days. Yes. But now our tongues are like galloping horses built for That's speed right. and efficiency. Razor sharp weapons. Well, that would be painful. Only if you get tongue-tied. True. Well, have a good evening. Yes, uh, and also with you as the uh, as the Catholics 